This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's O Ship. I have another really interesting guest on this week that I think you're all going to get a kick out of. Ross actually started as an engineer and became both a company founder and an early stage technology investor. But he's made several really smart early investments, including military tech developer Anduril and insure tech new front insurance, both now valued in the billions. And prior to his investing career, Ross had had numerous operating roles, including the founder and CTO of QTree, which was acquired by SuccessFactors, the director of engineering at Plumtree Software, and then he even went on to be the co-founder of Village Global, which you may have heard of. It's a venture capital firm with many well-known successful founders connected to it. Overall, though, I just think Ross is a really charming and clever guy, and he's basically a super connector of people, and he's used that talent to found XYZ Ventures Capital. And so Ross is passionate about making significant ideas scale up. In his own words, he feels that he gets to work with amazing people who build products indistinguishable from magic. And I can't deny that that sounds really incredible. So today we're going to actually talk to Ross about what it means to build incredible businesses, which I think everyone who watches our ship knows is something I'm really passionate about as well. And with that, here we go with another week of a ship. Ross, welcome to Shift. How are you? Terrific to be here. Thanks for having me, Freddie. Uh, well, I really appreciate you finding some time to talk to us. You got a really cool background. I hope I was, did a sufficiently good job at setting you up, but I feel like some people, I've done a ton of research on you over the years. I would love for you to tell our audience a little bit about your background, maybe a little bit about like what your journey has been to being a venture capitalist. Yeah, you bet. And thanks again for having me. It's, it's always fun just to share these stories and see if they're interesting to folks. You know, for me, the journey to being a VC and being part of like different companies getting built was really unexpected. I'm based in the Bay Area. I originally came out here as a core engineer for Netscape, working on the browser and security systems for them years ago. I ended up working for a pretty wide set of companies that came out of the Netscape diaspora. For those that don't remember Netscape, was among the very first browsers and really, it was such a pivotal part of the internet. To interject, I mean, I think for people that appreciate, I would argue that it was a, maybe the turning point that made a lot of people make the internet web really easy to access for a lot of folks, at least in the beginning stages. You cannot understate the importance of that technology, yeah. frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the IPO was this tremendous event that arguably kicked off the beginnings, the sort of kindling that was even the layer .com bust. So it's such an important thing. And actually, maybe at the, at the risk of moving slightly to the left for a second, one of the things that was crazy about Netscape is you had this company, this just doesn't exist anymore. And there were maybe, you know, three people over in this corner. They were like, you know, we weren't sure if this was a business and maybe we should sell it. And that was like a proxy server team. They ended up being like probably, I don't know, how big is the CDN business? Like, you know, a hundred billion dollars. And the LDAP team, which is LDAP was the early part of Active Directory, the identity system on the internet. And for companies, again, four people, Tim Howes and his crew coming over from Michigan. And so you had these little pockets. You didn't realize you were just inventing the internet, but you're inventing whole industries. And there's a whole other 
probably not, frankly more entertainingly i think not even realizing you're creating entire industries 100 percent. you're like that's a cool idea yeah. maybe yeah. like yeah. a multi-billion dollar industry one day it's like yeah. years 50 years later yeah and that's there's a whole other thread because i you know i'm like a little woodchuck in there just happy yeah. to be writing some code but if you can also see the business aspects now from that like you know, there were real wounds that happened to Netscape because of its lack of focus and there are books and books and books have been written about this. And there were also incredible moments like Mark Andreessen, as an example, has many things, including starting, you know, Netscape with Jim Clark and the teams. But he also was very early internally realizing the website mattered. <clears throat> All these things that we think are obvious now was not clear at the time. And he saw the website had value as we pivot away from the browser. Like that's you know, it's a really interesting, like these minor inflections within that company were just tremendous. So a really interesting place to, to initially grow up. I'm sure it had a huge impact on your journey overall. Tremendously, tremendously. And then, so I went from there, the Giz engineer to tell me, which came out of the Netscape diaspora, which was a really exciting company in the telephony space. It was applying the internet to telephony. Also a really interesting journey, you know, both because they were rocketing up. It was like, tell me. VMware and Google were like the big companies. Some of those ended up working out. Tell me later to be a billion dollar outcome to Microsoft. I mean, really the journey from consumer business, which was not actually a business, again, a whole other story to finding a tremendous enterprise business. Again, take a minor detour, a really fascinating story. Tell me, cause you know, a lot of folks right now are experiencing a downturn for maybe the first time. And tell me went through this in the dot-com days. Tell me lots of money, lots of talent. And but this consumer business theme makes sense. And they pivoted in being an enterprise business. And one of the things I always credit the team from and really learned a lot there was because when they made that pivot, it had a huge amount of precision. They said, we're the plan is now the 2020 enterprise customers, million bucks each, 20 and 20. And I still remember the experience of being in all hands when they announced this and people asked questions, another question, another question, third question. And Mike Zio says, like, this is the strategy. If you don't want to do it, you can leave. And it wasn't in a mean way. It was like, but it was very clarifying. You know, actually right now, it's sort of what we're talking to companies about, about doing that. Not like just cutting and we're surviving, but like, have a strategy. And this is what we're doing. And that's yeah. the path forward. You feel a lot right now. The lack of focus is an instantaneous way to create a ton of waste. Running companies for some bigger ones got a healthy dose of cat herding involved in it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I digress on the journey here. I ran a big part of engineering at this company called Plum Tree, which created the corporate portal space, which is just tremendous. A story of me at the importance of networks. So the Plum Tree was a company that had these incredible talent. The CEO, John Koontz, is now one of the leaders of PayPal. Glenn Kelman, the CEO of Redfin. Jay Simons, the president of Atlassian. And then many, many notable entrepreneurs from you know, David Myers at Databricks, Noam Levinsky, like these tremendous talent pool. It is really, really wonderful set of people. And I really learned a lot of engineering leadership from being there. I ran on to help manage a division of Symantec in the anti-spam space. And then this is sort of the peak of my leadership, you know, yeah. running large orgs. And then I took the detour that so many people have done much better than me. And I started a company in the enterprise collaboration space that you mentioned called KubeTree. And really the market timing and the idea was correct, which is building a Facebook, but for businesses and scaled up that business and ended up selling it to success factors, which then very quickly got bought by 
ASAP. So a hard, a great experience. You've had a hell, uh, hell of a uh, run, man. What? <laughs> hell of a run. Yeah, it was, it was great. That was like 13 years ago. Sold that. And then this is where I started venture. So long wind up, but the process I went through, then I ended up in a venture by lucky happenstance, a guy named Mitch Kapoor. Mitch, the founder of Lotus, Lotus one, two, three. Yeah, of course. A tremendous human. And also an angel investor before that was a thing. Yeah. Um, now we think, in fact, many people in the audience, I'm sure are angel investors and had successes and challenges putting money to work. This was not a thing 15 or 12 years ago. Yeah. And it was like Mitch, Ron Conway, you know, Aiden who runs a Felicis was running around with a couple of his own bucks. Like first round had just gotten started. And I had the good fortune to come in. Mitch was scaling up what he was doing as an individual in the Cape War Capital and worked there for a number of years and just learned so much doing early stage investment. We also did, you know, Twilio and Optimizely and LendUp and Clever and Form Labs and really, really interesting yeah. businesses, yeah. many still scaling. Then I went from there to Canon, which is a $6 billion multi-stage, multi-sector firm. Great folks. So you, so you kind of cut firm. your teeth with other firms basically before starting yeah. switching. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you go from your end of one, you know, right. your business works to like, oh, you see another, like it's different. And to maybe to your point, it, it was really different. Like here, actually, Canaan is a really strong yep. A-round firm. They do seeds and some Bs as well, but really, really strong, like looking at mature businesses that were you know, starting to be mature. And one of the reasons that they led to me starting XYZ was because I didn't want to do mature stuff. I want to do crazy people. So I ended up wanting to go even you know earlier back to what we've done at Cape Poor, more so. They still do some of that. But more so in XYZ, back in individuals at the idea stage and getting very, very involved in those companies. And that's why I ended up going and starting that fund. If you don't mind, I would say one more thing about that. It was interesting. Yeah, go for it. I think it was starting companies, either hell, starting small businesses, what your family's done, my family's done. Some is just rising, it's possible. And for starting funds, even when I was doing this, I didn't understand until I got close to another person starting a fund. And then just like, if you know someone who start raised venture capital or you raise, you know someone that's straight up pet shop, like, oh, here are the steps. And then so I'm like, oh, I can do this thing. I understand like, here's who I go talk to to raise capital. And then you have a fun. And you have also the good parts, but they're realizing it. You also have the scary parts, which is like the minute you sign those docs, you know, then you're doing it. And like, yo, Freddie, I've got your money. I've got my mom's money, literally other people's money. And you, the, the responsibility kind of kicks in and there's a little oh, yeah. inflection point there, but yeah. anyway, but other, the interesting thing I always think about is you see the little bit of the path, you can get on the path and then keep doing that thing and hopefully be successful at it. What kind of drove the desire that you saw the opportunity or was it, you know, the motivations like as an engineer, you're kind of a built like an inherently like a builder, you know, you could yeah. argue like, yeah. like what's kind of going through your brain as you go down this journey yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, in the, in the very beginning, you know, like so many things, there's kind of a, a nested set of uh, feelings. Some is like you said, is I really am a builder, so I like making things, I've come from making things versus twinning them. And so that's where I was you know, able to think about making my own. A second thing I would say that has matured immensely by the hints of, in a very immature ways, I thought I had a unique insight that was different from other people in venture. And I basically wanted to, to use that. And then the third, and this is embarrassing, but it's true for, for me and my journey. I'm a little prone to kind of stumbling into the next, you know, great or fun thing to do, not from a company selection point of view, but from a, why am I doing this? It's like, well, 
it seemed like I was being successful. It seemed like I was being helpful. I was enjoying it. I'm you know, invigorated to get up in the morning. That kind of yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. like gives you more energy. Like starting uh, when we were talking before this, starting a, a video series. Like, yeah. and like you kind of just keep doing more of it. And venture has a bunch of things that kick in if you're doing it well, which is money kicks in. Working with more companies and being part of their success kicks in. But it was not obvious to me, maybe in part because you give up other things that people maybe not don't realize is, for example, I really enjoyed leadership. I really loved hundreds and thousands of people working for me and trade-offs and career planning. You don't get to do a lot of that in venture. You're doing it through individuals and their exec teams. You're on that journey. But I always told this sort of funny story. It's like when the company goes public and everybody's there celebrating, the venture person, this is fine. You know, fun job. I'm like the speakerphone. Like, Good job, guys. Good job. <laughs> In the room. Yeah, yeah. It's just a different role. Yeah. And that's something you give up. And I, so you asked about the beginning. I was kind of working through all this. And then what really happened is I had two companies I was so excited about. Nova Credit and a company called Legion, both actually quite big and successful businesses yeah. now. And I wanted to be involved with them. And I then went through this process of being able to get money from foolish people that were kind enough to give it to me, invest in these two companies. I really kind of just got on that path. And that was, you know, when one started rolling in that basis. So, so I had all these attributes that, that led there. As I said, my engineering experience, I had been doing venture. So I was now to keep doing it. I benefited from that. I'm in the early cusp of when everybody in God's green earth was starting a fund. And so it was possible to raise money and there was comfort with that idea and then just good execution since then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting is I feel like you're talking about like this, how being an investor is like, there's some endorphins maybe that you get where certain yeah. actions happen. Yeah. The money's great, but I, I think there's a, it's more than fighting. Like you're feel like you're helping create things and that's getting you yeah. pumped up, but no job's ever perfect. Right. You can feel like that. And then you miss the more the managerial side. And sometimes when I look at my own world. Especially with like some of the creative people that I work with, I feel like the more senior you get, the more you feel removed from like the work and you miss that craft that maybe made yeah. you loved it something. Maybe it's like you, you think about being an engineer, you love coding and then you become a CTO as an example. Now you do more like performance management yeah. than yeah. the coding. There's always something left on the table. I guess it's why they have that expression, you know, craving, you know, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. And it's, yeah. it's really, really hard to do. One of the things you said that caught my attention was you were talking about how you were trying to be differentiated. And I think this is interesting where I think of, I'm a marketer by trade. So I think a lot about that and positioning. I don't always hear kind of engineers thinking about that. And obviously you're far more than that at, at this stage of your business, but you started the company in 2017. You've invested in over 70 companies, if I remember correctly, for the website. And to your point, you said, hey, look, a bunch of other people were trying to get into the space. So how do you differentiate? How do you stand out in that kind of space? Yeah, I would say two things about this, one about our business and one then more personal. The business part, so the thing I got to was we are great at one thing when we work with companies, which is a pretty old school view of venture, which is we help our companies raise the next round of funding. That's our goal. So what does that mean? It means the day that we invest, it's what are the things we're going to prove in the next year? What are we not going to prove? What are we focusing on? You run the clock forward. It's the iteration of the priorities. It's the hiring support, literally trying to get people over the line, as well as assessing if they're the right people for the team. And you get closer to the next round. It's the fundraising story. 
and who should we tell it to in the process to do that. But like, that is the thing that we are uniquely good at. And we're good at that for a specific reason that I came to over time. And this is the personal part. When I was raising at Toys A Fund 1, maybe the difference between Fund 1 and Fund 2 even, for me personally, was I knew what our difference was. I knew that this was the thing we were doing. In Fund 1, I had a little bit of that classic imposter syndrome. Not because I worried about being successful. I have all the competence of it, you know, you possibly could. Hopefully some humility in there too. I think it's the inside. I think there's a difference between confidence and being arrogant for the record. Yeah. That... Well, actually, again, as a digression, my favorite people in life are the folks that have all the ability sure. and none of the ego. You know, yeah. the Lee Hoffmans of the world, these people. Yeah. And it's when those two things cross, you know, it's like, the ego is higher than the ability. You're like, oh, you flip the bows yeah, open. It, like, it, it diminishes people when the, the talk is bigger than bark. And there's nothing cooler than, frankly, someone who's a little subtle about how good they really are, frankly. Yeah. The silent killer in the room. <laughs> the real yeah. badasses don't have to tell anyone else they're badasses, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 100%. 100%. 100%. What I didn't want to do, when I was raising it, was, yeah, it was an interesting personal inflection point, which was the way I'd been doing venture so far was I know somebody, Freddie, I got a CTO for you. I got an engineer, I got a customer. I got more hustle. And I was inflecting. I could not see this in retrospect where I was doing venture. And I wasn't sure what my differentiation was. I didn't want to be a banker. I just want to be the guy that met the Android team first and pushed a check in. I wanted to have the value. And so the thing I've now figured out, and now the reason, again, in fun two, and now we're on the you know, many fun sense, was the thing that we were uniquely good at. It's we, me and my partner, Chauncey, and everyone on the, the XYZ team, the companies we work with, they always know more about their business. You know, the team at Chapter knows more about Medicare brokering than I will. The team at Sardine knows more about fraud than I will. The team at Android knows more about making defense products than I will. That said, I know way more about the venture ecosystem, like what's going on, how it's changing, who to go to, story, this fact is wrong, no one will ever do that, we should present it this way. And I was able to integrate that understanding in that mm -hmm. place I'm living now with my company building and operating experience. And then I feel able to do something very authentically valuable. And that's all I wanted. I just didn't want to show up in a room and not be able to do something. And I'll come back to something else. Venture mm -hmm. people are often talking about their differentiation. We record over founder friendly. It's good, but it's because we're all selling a commodity. Like it's money. It's some money. We like some equity. The thing that I wanted personally was to feel like I knew why I was there. Like, what is my value to this company? What can I do that's genuinely, hopefully tremendously valuable? Because that was what I wanted in the job. And I was able to find that over time and have enough iterations that now I know how to do that imperfectly, but do it consistently with companies. And are there any particular sectors you're really passionate about investing in? Yeah, there are. And one of the things that as a company is XYZ, one of the reasons I think we've been so successful. So we are, you know, invest in fintech company, things about money movement and enterprise companies, B2B software. Within those we've done is pick some changes in those industries that have led to very specific themes within them. So within the enterprise, for example, we now, and for a long time, over 10 years, I've been really passionate about doing public sector investments. Mm. So public sector just means, you know, money, the government spending versus enterprise, which is money companies are spending. Interesting. What made you lean in there? It's a deep personal desire and then opportunity. Personal desire, 
is, I mean, I think for, for all of us, so much comes back to our families. My grandfather was assistant secretary of defense under Kennedy and Johnson, a tremendous mind, you know, spoke 12 languages, multi PhDs under fair rate. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you're just the, next, next you're level. Next, you're not going to get badass. Oh, I mean, only also like a tiny short man, intense as shit, like, you know, yeah, his congressional enough. hearings, he's like yelling at people. Awesome. And I knew him very well. I knew him later in his life, but he was just deeply wise. He was this tremendous, tremendous guy with books on him. And I'll never get there. Just no chance. No yeah. chance I'll get there in terms of accomplishments, but it's the aspiration, the different in the distance. And so I grew up outside of DC and I had an interest in public sector. And the second thing that happened was really just an opportunity. I was very close to the founding team at this big data company called Palantir, mm -hmm. which uniquely did a lot of work in the public sector, still does, mm -hmm. public company. Yeah. And so this was the opportunity, which is by, you know, seeing them execute. And I'd done stuff in the public sector all the way back to Netscape. I was selling mm -hmm. to the government. As a leader in learning about how the government buys things and what they need, I got to learn that through Palantir. And now we backed well over 25 firms that are people coming out the Palantir diaspora. They've been educated in how the government needs things and how we can provide solutions for it. So Andrew is one example, one of the highest profile example of this. Andrew is a new defense contractor and its goal is to make the most important technology advancements in the world available to the government for anti-drone systems that keep people on the ground in Ukraine safe and keep our own very cool. And it was a real insight that team had around how to build products, also how to go through the procurement process and the pricing process for those products, and then has led them to just billions of dollars in value and really tremendous scale. When you hear about firms like that, which are massive firms now, but you focus on early stage when you're getting involved with your for investments yep. traditionally. When you look again across all this experience you've had, not just for your own career, but also again, all these companies that you've now invested in, I think one of the things our audience would most benefit from is kind of hearing like, what have you learned? Like, what are some of the best tips that you're either, you know, either you've sharing with your investments to be more successful, or frankly, you're maybe even learning from the entrepreneurs that you invest in, you know, you've said, these are, this is the playbook, right? This is how you build better businesses. I have two feelings about this and a bunch of tactics involved from it. The first is really having a deep insight. So this is something we look for in every single company we invest in. And then as we're navigating the company forward, it's like, it goes back to actually phrase something you said, just classic focus, how we unique, what is the audience for which our thing is unique? And I don't think you can understate how important this is. So when we first back a company, what we're looking for is what is this deep insight about a market that is shifting that we can see or the company can see. It almost even at that point doesn't matter if we think we can get our, I mean, use a bad metaphor, but we are surfboard on that wave. It's like, can you see, see the, way, the wave is happening? Is it shifting? Is mm -hmm. the public sector motion going to occur? We're building fintech infrastructure. Can you see that like they're going to be more fintechs and they need new unique tooling to enable their fraud decisioning systems or whatever it is? Like you see that wave coming and that the wave it comes from just real education, talking to customers in seeing a constant unmet need. The reason I bring this one up is because I think it's true in every market. We have companies right now that are growing into their valuations. Long story short, in the venture market, expectations have gone up and valuations have come down. So you have businesses that you know, need to keep growing into their last round of value, right? 
So an example of this focus is figuring out you're scaling a business from 7 million to 17. Well, Kudu really loves you and you can build more for, so you can make more money for those existing customers because that's a real cost-efficient thing to go do versus going and getting new customers. And so again, you're sort of peering into your existing customer base saying, what else can I do for them? It's always a lesson. It's a very simple thing, but I think it's always a lesson. One of the things I think you see, especially in early stage, especially if they're trying to create something new, you know, versus maybe a micro innovation or something that's there. I think there's this tension sometimes. People have that kind of classic solution and search for problem type thing. So they've come up with some kind of amazing tech they think is really cool, but it maybe it doesn't actually fit an unmet need. But yeah. at the same time, you might talk to someone where it really is like that kind of classic, you know, Steve Jobs, like the customer doesn't even know that this is a problem yet. Yeah. We're yeah. So yeah. How do you like weed your way through those as an investor? Yeah. I love this question because it reminds me of how I met my wife when I was dating people terribly, ineffectively. I told my friends I wanted to meet a redhead that spoke Italian that lived within five blocks. What <laughs> <laughs> Very well, but that's my point. Like, you know, you know what doesn't prompt people is like, hey, do you know someone who's nice, pretty smart, pretty hot? I'm like, that doesn't work. Yeah. Precision, yeah. and because the precision lets you look for a certain kind of person, certain kind of company. So I think the constraints are what help you the most. So to answer your example, when we're working with founders, whether we've invested, we're trying to scale the business, improve things, or whether and before we invest, we're saying, who is this small audience that wants exactly the thing that we're doing? And then can we deliver this tremendous result for them? It almost never kills you that there's not enough people. Later, we can talk about this. There's a question of TAM, how many people want to buy this thing? You know, how big is your market? But I'll tell you, that usually comes up when something is like, just to pick a number north of 20 million in revenue, north of, like you're scaling a business. And you those questions. Like if two people really want something, there's probably four and there's probably yeah, 40 yeah. and there's probably. I mean, that the five block Italian speaking redhead is a pretty limited market. I'm just saying. So, so at what point does it become interesting? I'm obviously kidding, but like, when does it get interesting to a venture capitalist in your opinion? Let's say in the B2B enterprise space, I think it's kind of interesting. But it's just, it's predicting, it's predicting, predicting what is changing in that market. So let me give you another example. We were investors in a company called Hex. Hex is a tremendously valuable company for data scientists. And let me phrase it to you one way. It's collaboration around data. It helps, you know, BI teams move more quickly. That was a very generic, very broad description. Under the covers, what's made this company so successful is they in a intimate focus on initially, we have a Python, Python developers and data science teams. They need to show their work to their boss or other teams. And we build an incredible reporting dashboarding system that lets people iterate like Figma. Figma was a design tool. That you yeah, yeah, I love through. it. We're Figma users. Yeah. So this exact same concept led to data science. And they walked that and then they realized like, oh, that actually to do that, you're missing a ton of things. This caching system, infrastructure, and they made it amazing. And then they went from Python, that's actually kind of a small market, to anyone doing SQL and sort of opened up to every Excel person and so the product just moved in that way. And so I love this example. This team is tremendous, but also because they started in a space that's field generic, BI, BI data science. There's a thousand of those companies and they had done this execution in this expansion. So while they started with something that sounded like, you know, small and maybe even small, like don't a lot of people do that. They found 
unique things they did and they were able to walk it up. And actually, Freddie, this points to the second thing that I make. It's a personal belief and an XYZ belief. Is it like execution solves everything? If you mm -hmm. sprint faster than every other person out there, you and your team are going to win. Now, mm -hmm. it might be that, you know, your market's actually, it's a $2 billion company, not a $20 billion company. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But you're going to find like the right outcome for your business if you just move quicker. And sometimes it can be, and there are hard things in there. Should we, you know, focus on existing customers? Do we need to, you know, build something else in TAM expansion? These are hard debates. Like, you know, have we, have we fallen into a ditch or is this just a, you know, a little dip in the turn, a dip in the road? But really, if you just, you keep executing with velocity, features mm -hmm. getting out of customer discussions, like you can drive forward. And that's been a second thing, which I think can't be understated. And so you see that insight and then you move like a crazy person to whatever's the next logical thing you go do. You mentioned earlier, kind of, that obviously it's a trickier time now. Valuations are going to be lower, a little harder to raise capital. Going into that kind of market, if you're an entrepreneur, yep. what are some tips that you would also maybe give so people could run better businesses that are also thinking about maybe raising their first or their next round? Yeah, the thing I would point to, so, well, maybe first comment in the market right now. We just switched from enthusiasm across venture and arguably across entrepreneurship, which I, I just believe is a mistake in the world. I just believe entrepreneurship is the only thing that really matters until you create change. But we moved it from excitement to skepticism. So that's just what's going on. There's also an economic change that's happened is the multiples of the public markets came down. So everything kind of came down with it. And there's some venture teams that are maybe under pain or people are nervous about their jobs even. So that's the, that's the vague shift that's going on. So we're looking funded. There's still excitement for businesses, but this is the sort of ennui that is coming the same way you feel worse because your 401k is lower. Yeah. Yeah. You know professionally. So that's the context. So my answer to your question, like, what do you do is twofold. And number one, general fundraising. I think the biggest mistake we see people making in fundraising is actually one of sales qualification. Like does the person you're pitching do the kind of thing you're trying to do or that it's a late stage. I think it's because people are just spamming. Basically they're getting investor lists and just bombing everyone. But and, and that just never worked ever. And now yeah, I'm just trying to figure out why someone would do that. Like email firm that or reach out to a firm that doesn't maybe invest in their sector or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And the inverse of this, if you really want to reach someone, you want to reach me, the way to go is to go through somebody that knows me. Even this, like reach out to Freddie. Cause Freddie, like I'll read an email. I read all my email, but like one okay. from any connectivity gets like a little bit more, more. If it's a founder or something like that, then, you know, it unlocks even higher. And that creates its own traps of closed networks and white men that don't invest in white men, blah, blah, blah. We try to address that as well. That's a whole other topic. But ultimately getting in through some connection, some fact that that helps. But yeah, the spamming across, it just doesn't work. It never worked. I think mm -hmm. in my lived experience, people do that because they want to be successful. They don't know how to do it, right? Whether you're in Lithuania or you're in Louisville, you don't know people. And this is the only tool you've got in your toolbox. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about better or worse ways to do that, but it's just hard. And so that's the grind. But it ultimately is like, think about who you're offering. Do they want to buy the kind of thing you're, mm -hmm. you're selling? The second thing I would say is vividly present right now, actually just writing a note to our whole portfolio about this in particularly in C to A and A to B, maybe it is less plus B, is the importance of customers. Because mm -hmm. what's something that's really changed right now 
is because things of the skepticism I mentioned, mm-hmm. ancient people and other investors are taking more time because they can't. They don't have to respond in 24 hours like, would they deal at any price? They should mm-hmm. have time and they're doing more diligence. Mm-hmm. And, which is a good so, thing, in my opinion, for all parties involved. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, federal companies get invested in really good ideas actually get found out because people are taking enough time to understand this crazy idea is actually a really good idea. Person's mm-hmm. like, oh, it doesn't fit whatever the hype cycle is of the moment. The net result you can do here is just have customers that love you. It sounds mm-hmm. silly and obvious. We have a company right now that's raising money. First week in market, like nine people are all excited. All of those people, their next step is now we either want to talk to customers or we're going to introduce you to prospects who I think could be customers. Mm-hmm. And it used to be, here's a term sheet and I'm going to do work to try and win the deal. Now it's like, well, I want to see what your customers say. I want to see what these people are introduced. Are they excited about it? And again, it sounds silly and obvious, but like, it really is like, if those customers say, I can't live without this. Let me tell you, I've looked at 50 other things. This is what this one's unique. Like that 10 out of 10, like that's what gets funded right now. So that, it means the good part about this is if you focus and you focus on those customers, you focus on the execution of things you can control, you can get a company funded because that differentiation will come through. That's the opportunity that exists. It is arguably not as fun as when everybody wants to throw you all the money and all the dollars. And, you know, that too, you could have a great- It was kind of like the job market. It was like the job market was so crazy or even the housing market. It was so yeah. wacky the last couple of years that you didn't have a chance to think about anything. It was like, well, you can make an offer or you don't. Doesn't matter yeah. to me because some other lunatic's going to offer 20% of her asking price in the next 10 minutes, so exactly. whatever. But yeah. is that really always the best fit? I mean, think about, again, I'm using a house as an example, but like the number of people that impulsively bought a house that maybe they didn't actually love as much as the value they put it or took someone, hired someone that, you know, they didn't maybe, wasn't necessarily the right candidate, but they were so freaked out that they'd never see another person look like that person. Like yep. did anyone. And I think the same thing was happening in the investment space to some degree, so. And the housing was actually a great example because if that happens, like you're then in that house, you own that house, like same thing, like whether it's 2 million or 50 million, like Freddie, you invest, like now you're like, well, this is what I'm doing. Like what if the right thing to do was to like not do it, to sell it and move on to the next thing. These are all big commitments. I certainly wouldn't impulsively marry someone that way. And I can investing in a company or buying a house is not obviously quite the same as version, but it's a big commitment like that. We're yeah. doing crazy, crazy, crazy wild stuff the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, I often say this to founders and it almost never lands correctly in all candor, but it's like, at the end of the day, like I actually do have a portfolio, but you have one thing you're doing and that's great, but, but you should make sure you believe this is a thing worth doing. Cause it's, that's what you're doing. I am the mother stuff. So like, you know, I got, you know, pick your analogy. I got other plays in the board, I got a you know, portfolio, whatever. This is the thing, like your blood's going into this. Like yeah. I'm just holding the bucket, yeah. it's your blood. And so to make sure that it's worthwhile. And I think that's the opportunity right now that exists, whether we're in a downturn or not. I mean, stocks up, market's up today. Woo, we're all rich again. That's the real work of the founders believing this thing makes sense. It's, it's their passion. And then related to that is it's not just as many smart people say, it's not just passion. It's like uniquely see how your thing is going to matter and therefore how you're going to find your customers and then drive it ever faster forward. And that's just the journey that we're on. It's the journey every single company is on. We have another company that's been tremendously successful selling to the world's largest, like Fortune 100 company. 
million dollar deals. It's great. That said, those deals take a long time to close. We're trying to find velocity. So this company is now going through change or going through a shift. It's not a big shift, but it's an important one. How do you find velocity? How do we find mid-sized customers will buy the product faster, given all this good assets the company has. They have mm -hmm. like your big brand names using it, but they've had to develop a new motion. And it really is like a whole new gear to build into the company. And everyone here is in businesses knows they get the strength, the culture and the DNA. And we're so thoughtful. This company can trust us with every single employee in their whole organization to like, oh no, I need to go fast and commit someone to give me 30K in a month, not in nine months is a really different motion and it's equally valuable in this company's so ability to like reinvent, rediscover is so important. So, so, so important because it just keeps coming up and up and leaders that can do that are just tremendous because they can always work on the most important thing in a company, whether that's me and Jessica starting a company today or whether it's something that's, you know, you're public and you've got to find another gear of growth to, to be able to show a year from now. I want to change gears a little bit. And I think we've talked about some of the growth levers we see out there. We talked about scaling. We talked about product market fit, the impacts of fundraising. But I'm really intrigued from a VC's perspective, when you're evaluating companies and you're thinking about what the future success looks like, how much do you think about or analyze your perception of their culture? And what does a good culture mean to you? Maybe there's two answers, one, the easy one and the harder or more amorphous one. The easy one is, are people treated with respect? Is this a place that is seeking out the best talent, often in a diverse way, because the non-diverse ways are the obvious path isn't a healthy place where people are growing their careers because you think that those strong people within the company are going to grow and have bigger and bigger jobs. Palantir is one of the reasons it was such an exciting business is because you could see that there's a place that didn't really, talent grew up within it. And like, those are important indicators. Mm -hmm. Then the culture itself is healthy and people are being thoughtful about how that business is run. I would call it easy. And then like, you know what that looks like, you know, and you can sense, you know, are people, do they have those ideas in mind when they recruit, how they talk with their staff, how they talk about what they're trying to accomplish, how they're striving with an executive to hope they get to the next level versus like, oh, treating people like cogs in a machine. So that's probably one part. I would generally put that into my easy bucket, the hard bucket to assess and equally important though, is what does the culture mean you're like, you're uniquely good at? So years ago, before they were public and visible, I used to always compare Dropbox and Palantir, completely opposite businesses. Dropbox couldn't build an enterprise motion to save its life. It tried to try to do it 10 times, but it had this immense adoption cycle because that the referral motion, the value of the product, beautiful design, meant like just millions and millions of people were adopting it. Palantir, couldn't get out of bed for less than 10 million in a deal. Totally different DNAs. And so what I think about is like, what is your unique DNA? And actually, I actually already talked about this a little bit. This other company had large enterprise DNA and now needs to, you know, add this other DNA in. But it's like, so what I think of is like, what is the company uniquely good at? And how is that DNA getting designed? And that could be like, are we a culture that is intimate to our businesses? And let me tell you about how we not only have a Slack channel, but like I get on the plane, I go see them. Immediately, because I have to learn that way. Yeah. And that different from people that are like, we do hard things. And we know this is an impossible problem, but we're going to go build a battery swapping solution involving five robots. It'll be on the Today Show. You drive your Nissan Leaf in there and it swaps out all the batteries. It's amazing. But yeah. it's a technical challenge to yeah. think what's even be done. 
And that's why anyway, it's a different DNA. And so what I think a lot about is like trying to figure out like, do these people have a, a unique DNA yeah. for ultimately usually distribution? Like, you know, they're thinking about get built and get put out into the world through partnerships, through marketing, et cetera. How is the culture uniquely set up to win? That's cool. I like that. It was an unexpected answer. So it's time, Ross, I have to ask you for an O'Ship story. For those of you who have never joined O'Ship before, a lot of the original premise of the show was getting a chance to talk to guys like Ross, who have had some great successes in their career and in their investments and things like that. And then kind of say, you know what? It's not always a straight path to success. It's not always as point A to point B. It's very rarely as a straight line. And so I'd love to get these opportunities to ask people, hey, look, what's a moment in your career where maybe things went a little awry or things were hard for you? And, and how did that shape you? How did that change you? What did you learn from it? Maybe that's an inspiring story. Maybe it's just a learning story of, you know, just how you thought about stuff. Maybe it's just a moment of humanity or sometimes they're really funny. The floor is yours. It could be anything you want, but I would love to hear kind of an oh ship experience from your past, Ross. Yeah, I love this is the focus of your discussions because it's part of you know, what all of us experience. Like you think like overnight success, oh my God, mean this person, right. or hearing their story, then under the covers, it's like, oh yeah, it's freaking like craziness and bunking on top writers and whatever. I actually, I have, I have many of these because it's those hard things that hopefully make you better, a better partner, a better life partner, all those things. But I go back to, to what I talked about before about the founding of XYZ. And remember, I mentioned earlier in this discussion that I had these two companies, I understand I could sort of fund and I had this opportunity of these two incredible companies to be part of the fundraising part. I mean, it was so hard and so lonely in every way. And I think about this empathetically a lot with companies that are raising money or raising a bunch of money because I was doing the same thing, but you know, raising money from these limited partners to provide me venture capital. And I made every mistake there is to do there. The most vivid one was I didn't do what we just talked about with sales constraint. I was talking to anybody, Freddie, if we, you know, we're chatting, hey, you got 10 bucks, I get this venture fund, you should put money in. <laughs> it's gonna be I'm great. Like, oh, <laughs> the result of that, my ship, and you see so clearly, is I was exhausting myself because uh, I'm pitching everybody something they don't necessarily want. And it was a bad feeling and it was hard and it was the grind and it was so lonely. You really feel like you're just out there doing this thing. It's, it's the flip side of like, once you make something, it's like, well, let me tell you this, the journey of the mythical man up on the hill and you've done it. Like one of the covers, like you're making your wife miserable. You're not being a great part of your kids. You're totally sure it's the right thing to do. You know, it's goddamn hard. And there are tricks along the way that I was fortunate to do both, I had a couple of people that believed in me when they shouldn't have, and I'm going to return 20 extra money. I feel great. I do feel very loud. <laughs> but they really made no sense. In venture, one of the things that I did that was savvy, I had a first close very early. So basically, the first couple of million bucks, like, okay, I'm going to close it. I'm going to get in business. That pushed me into a mentality like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm really doing this. And it was a little invest in the companies so and the story got better because you're starting to immediately develop a track record. But again, it was really very, very, very hard. Yeah. And it was hard the same way, you know, what we have a company right now, I ended up really successful, went from zero to a million bucks in the first year, spending almost nothing. And I was talking to the team the other day, they're really big fans of ours. So like, I don't get why you're a big fan. We haven't done that much. Mm -hmm. And it really was the story back very flatteringly from them. It was like, well, it was really like you believed in us. And 
for them, it was this discussion. They called me one day and some customer, that, early customer, they thought, were good, they thought they were going to close. Didn't work out. And my reaction, because I see a lot of companies like, great, let's go find 10 more and just call it, just basically keep moving. Hmm. And that, in retrospect, is what enabled XYZ to be successful. It wasn't some great insights. I just kept moving, you know, and then those companies did well. We've talked about like the lessons learned that was like, learned by doing that then became very clear. Like I know what is unique about XYZ. And so it makes pitching the firm very easy now. And now I enjoy it versus I really didn't like it. You know, what's so interesting to me about this is I think I'm not in the VC or, or investment space, but I'm, you know, an entrepreneur. I've raised, made money in parts of my career. And I've certainly consoled many of my friends as they've gone through the fundraising process and not to be mean to you or any of my other VC friends, but a lot of them have described it a little bit like getting a proctology exam. It's not very much fun if you're an you know, entrepreneur and it's easy to forget that you guys are out there trying to go raise money too. So it's like, you know, you're dealing with some of those same experiences actually in your own way. And I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's true the whole way through. I mean, one of the reasons I think that we make good decisions is I am panicked about losing money. I really want to be successful. I want XYZ to be successful. Like that's the cold heart thing. Yeah. Like when you start something, your business at Chameleon, uh, XYZ, the companies we're involved with, like I really want them to work. Now there's a role in venture, which is different. There's a role as the founder and all that nuance, but it's the same like desire not to fail. It's a great grinder. You know, yeah, that like makes you keep going, right? I was having a chat with someone about this just yesterday. And I think a lot of people don't realize what I'm about to say. And I think that some of the most confident people I know simultaneously have a very healthy sense of paranoia and fear that it could go away at any moment. Yeah. And so, you know, part of the thing with any of the businesses I've grown is because I think I was, and most of my friends or colleagues would know this by looking at me, it's because I'm so terrified that something could go wrong yeah. and I tend to overcompensate on growth yeah. because I'm worried it won't be there. Yeah. And then when it does end up being there, then we have these tremendous growth numbers, but it's yeah. not because I think it's going to be so perfect. It's because I'm so paranoid about the inverse happening yeah. that I yeah, tend yeah. to overdo it out of a complete yeah. sense of, you know, I don't call panic healthy paranoia that I've got. It sounds like the same might drive you. Yeah. It's closely related to ambition for me. I'll tell you a funny story about this. Rhymes with what you're saying. When I was running a cube tree with my co-founder years ago, as I said, we, we sold the business and it was actually a great outcome to success factors uh, on SAP. And I'm literally driving the Honda Fit down to the bank, to SPV, to distribute the money. Why they couldn't send out, I have no idea. I had to go to the bank to distribute the money. Calling my mom, talked to my mom right every other day. Mom and I are really close. And I'm like, yeah, I'm driving down, you know, acquisition. And there's a sort of, sort of uh, this pause. And my mom's like, do you think you could have sold it for more? And I'm like, what are you doing? The champagne part got done. It would be better. And that's there the whole time. You know, it's just like, no matter what you've done, it's like, well, could you be doing a little bit? A little bit more. Yeah. Um, and you got to do that in the right way. You got to be generous to yourself yeah. and celebrate successes. And it was great. Right. But it's like, Freddie, could go just a little bit faster? <laughs> or, you know, and I think that's the, the thing that I think that every builder has that's like pushing them. And it can be a part of their identity. It could be keeping up with the Joneses and that can be broken. Yeah. And also just be like, I want this to exist. And I, yeah. My employees, my customers. Yeah. 
investors. So it's a, it's I love that. It is a perfect, I think, place to jump off. Before I kind of jump in with you, Ross, I just want to thank everyone who's been tuning in this episode, whether you've been listening to us on our streaming channels and on audio only on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, whether you're tuning in via the web series on YouTube or LinkedIn or Facebook or any of the other places we stream. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about our ship show, go to shipshow.com. You can see the links to all the different platforms you're streaming. Easy to subscribe. The best thing you can do to support the show is give us a like, comment, share it with a friend. All that is really appreciated. Every week, we're going to keep bringing this show to you completely uncommercialized, trying to get great content that helps inspire you, whether you're a leader in the corporate environment, whether you're an aspiring leader, whether you're an investor, whether you're an entrepreneur, you just really want to hear about stories that can help propel you forward. This is a great place for you to do that. Ross, I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. If people want to follow and connect with you, what's the best places for them to kind of learn more about you or maybe follow along with you on social? Yeah, the best place for me is probably LinkedIn. So track me down uh, at slash Fubini or just look up Ross, R-O-S-S, Fubini, F-U-B-I-N-I or XYZ Venture Capital. Awesome. So check them out. Ross, thanks again for your time. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope we get a chance to again, connect in the future. Good conversation. Uh, you're an inspiring guy. You got some real fun stories, a lot of insightful uh, tips for folks. Everyone, thank you again for tuning into our ship. Ross, I'll catch you in the future and we'll see you next week on the ship. Tremendous. Thank you. Thank you.